So welcome everyone to this event today. It's so good to see so many people coming from all around the world to support this event. And thank you, Christina, for uh, joining us and supporting Guy House as a, um, as, a, as in all your many roles and for offering this, uh, this Dharma talk and question and answer today uh, and for bringing us all together. Uh, and thank you to everybody for your uh, graciously received financial support to keep Guy House alive through these difficult times that we're facing right now. Uh, as, as you know, I'm sure many of you, that Guy House is located in, in Devon in England, uh, where I am now, uh, along with Richard, who's um, the co-host with me, and Christina, who's just down the road in, in Totnes. But we have got people, I, I'm noticing, introducing themselves in the chat room from Switzerland, uh, California, Ireland, uh, a few people from Berlin, a couple from Wales, someone from the Czech Republic, people joining us from the Netherlands, from Denmark, from Jerusalem. So this is truly an international event uh, coming together to support Guy House. And you are all so welcome wherever you're from. Um, so it just remains for me really to, to thank you again once again for all your support and for everybody behind the scenes who brought this together and is helping it to run smoothly tonight. It's my great pleasure to hand over to Christina Feldman, who is the co-founder of Gaia House. Uh, she's also now one of the charity's uh, two patrons, along with Stephen Batchelor. She's been teaching insight meditation um, since I was preschool in the mid-1970s. <laughs> um, she's an author of numerous books, has dedicated her life to the study and application of the early teachings of the Buddha uh, and Buddhist psychological foundations of mindfulness and, and supports those training to teach mindfulness-based uh, applications uh, in England and, and Europe. So without me uh, taking up any more time, I hand you over to Christina. Christina, thank you so much. I would just like to really welcome you all from wherever you are and whatever conditions you're in. Um, it's such a delight to see so many lovely faces, so many people I know. I would actually love to just hang out and have a chat and see how you are. Um, I know we're all doing our best. And for all of those I've never met before, really a, a very warm welcome to you and also my appreciation for uh, not only the attention that, that you bring to, to being here and your sincerity, but also my appreciation for your, your willingness to support Gaia House um, through your attendance and through your dana. It, it really does uh, make a difference. Um, I have never in, I think, I've always appreciated Donna, but never in my entire life have I felt uh, so, so much gratitude to, to so many people who are supporting centers, supporting the continuing of the teaching, supporting the, the teachers. It's truly a sense of how the Dharma is really kept alive in, in this most, in a foundational way. Of, of generosity of heart. So my heartfelt thanks to you. So this evening we have um, a, a bit of a schedule. Uh, so I'd, uh, I'm intending and inviting you to participate. 
uh, in a 15 minute sit to begin the evening. Um, and then I'd, I'd like to offer some reflections for half an hour or so. Um, and then we'll have some time for, for some, some questions, some reflections. And as, uh, as Devin said, I, I so much appreciate it if you do use the raised hand feature, because I, I think a big part of these, these gatherings um, is to hear other people's voices. And I, I think in times when we're often so removed from so many people, to hear the voices of others can be really heartening and, and gladdening. So unless you're, you're really deeply shy to, to use that feature so we can, you can also, we can also hear you. So I, I'd like to invite us all to, to, to gather together in, in, a, in a silent sit. And, you know, and I hope you've had the chance to, to scroll through the screens. But, you know, one of the significant pieces of, of doing evenings like this or teachings like this online is, is that very powerful reminder that although we may feel alone, how much we are really not alone and how a sense of, of community and, and learning together and practicing together, as we have done pre-COVID, is still very much alive. So let's take a, a moment to, to gather and, and to collect and to, to arrive. Really having an awareness of how a meditative space, a retreat space, is really born inwardly of our own intentionality, our own wholehearted way of being present in this moment for ourselves and for all of those around us. And remembering as we gather and collect ourselves that we walk on this path, not just for our own well-being, but for the well-being of those we love and care for. The many we don't know. For those we struggle with. The path is a way of remembering, remembering what we most deeply value, what we aspire to, what is possible for us. So collecting, gathering our attention, establishing posture of intentionality, embodied intention. Finding that marriage of alertness, wakefulness, and softness.
mindful of touching the chair, the cushion, the ground. Inhabiting the body, however it may be, with mindfulness, with kindness, with compassion. Seeing the body, sitting, sensing, listening, breathing. Mindful of whether the body is agitated or calm, contracted or easeful. And just breathing into the body. With sensitivity, with care. Aware, mindful of the landscape of your mind heart just now. Again, just sensing quite simply whether the mind feels agitated, busy, or calm, easeful. Allowing the thoughts, the images to arise and to pass. It's contracting around none of them. Sensing the possibility of spaciousness. of wakefulness, 
of easefulness. Offering inwardly a mindfulness, a wakefulness, imbued with kindness, with warmth, with care. And expanding that <clears throat> field of awareness to include the people in your life that you love and care for. And to include the many people in this world who may be struggling just now. may be in difficulty or in pain. Since seeing what it is to embrace all with care, with warmth, with friendliness. Mindful of the universality of our stories. the universality of the story of our body, the story of our mind hearts. And offering our deepest wishes for the well-being of all beings.
So I wanted to offer a few reflections around the theme of restoring, renewing, resourcing ourselves. I remember reading a story about Akin Roshi, who was teaching a retreat. And he came into the Dharma Hall on the second day, which, as many of you who've been on retreats know, can be quite a, a challenging day when, you know, all the stories you've read about the bliss of meditation seem to be stories about somebody else other than you. <coughs> and Akin Roshi came in. And he, he said, the difficulties you are experiencing now. And pe people were looking at him with great anticipation. You know, perhaps he had some magical, magical words to offer. And he said, the difficulties you are experiencing now are going to be with you for the rest of your life. And people said initially they felt this, this great sense of, of letdown, you know, and, oh, no, what have I got myself into? And then, of course, he explained that this was not actually not going to be so. But what would it be like if it was so? You know, and I, I think of this for, for many people in our world who are, you know, living with chronic illnesses or chronic pain or you know, psychological, emotional struggles that don't seem to go away. And I think about, you know, the situation that we're all in. And I wonder how many of you have had the thought of when this is over? Have a few of you found yourself saying that to yourself? When this is over? And some months ago, actually, when we were in the, the first lockdown, I... I, I found myself talking to my, my young grandson and, and using that phrase of when this was over. And then I thought, is this actually helpful? Is this actually helpful? Am I in some kind of waiting room? You know, for when this is over, is my life in a waiting room waiting for this to be over? You know, is it? And then I think about how many times I, I, I really encourage people not to practice postponement practice. You know, not to, you know, on retreats when the mind is saying, you know, you know, when, when I have a, a more comfortable sitting posture or, you know, when, when I'm in a better life situation, you know, or when, when my relationship is improved, you know, then I will really begin to be able to practice. Again, and I said, this is postponement practice. This is postponement practice. And when I found myself using that phrase, when this is over, I realized this was another form of postponement practice. And really, really felt the, the helpfulness of that, that actually this doesn't have to go away. This doesn't have to be over in order to live a meaningful life in order to find the ways to, to thrive, um, not just to survive, but to thrive and not just to endure. I remember feeling that, you know, deep sense of, of gratitude for the, for the years of my practice, but also a deep sense of, of gratitude um, to the, the liberating nature of the Buddhist teachings.
when you know he so clearly says to us none of us are invulnerable to the world of conditions and it's important that we are not invulnerable it's important that we are are deeply touched by the conditions of this world in every moment without being deeply touched we have we have no inspiration for for compassion or for care or or for warmth but the buddha also taught that there's a way of living <clears throat> where we are not a hostage to the world of conditions where we don't feel that our our happiness and our well-being and our easefulness is dependent upon having just the right set or the perfect set of conditions and none of us have this in our life just now so what does it mean for us to 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 live in a way where we're not where we don't feel to be a prisoner of the world of conditions waiting for something to be over I mean, I'm very I'm very aware that for for almost a year now uh, the story of our lives and the lives of everyone in the world has has really is a story that's been written by the pandemic conditions outside of ourselves um really governing how we live who we see what we're able to do and everyone everyone has their own lockdown story and for many people for most perhaps it is a story of loss although that many people have discovered so many blessings have appreciated so many acts of kindness and generosity during this time still our lives are radically changed we've all lost something um and some of those losses have been grievous i found very early on uh, myself reflecting on what it is to move from involuntary renunciation to voluntary renunciation you know for most most people in life their first exposure to renunciation is involuntary there are losses things change in ways that they don't want them to they're faced with uncertainty or unpredictability and it almost feels as if things have taken away and this has been you know uh, it's been very true during this last year hasn't there has been a lot of involuntary renunciation and yet it's, it's really i i've reflected on how it's really not a very helpful landscape to inhabit you know involuntary renunciation is often a landscape of of resentment you know of deprivation and then i reflect on how much renunciation is really at the heart of the buddhist teaching of awakening i know it's a word that a lot of people are not so comfortable with that it can feel quite austere or quite quite cold which was never meant to be certainly my first teacher said to me the renunciation is the greatest gift of compassion that you can offer to yourself and it it took me a long time to understand that to understand the kind of pain and the the contractedness and the suffering that comes with clinging to anything at all including our ideas of how things should be 
voluntary renunciation is appreciating. It's not about getting rid of things of the world, but it's appreciating some of the, the deepest layers of the Buddhist teaching of awakening, that we actually never really were in control of the world of conditions. Can I be at peace with that? Can I find grace within that? Life has always been impermanent and changing. Sometimes we pretend it's not so, or it shouldn't be happening. But can we be at peace with that? <clears throat> All of us have always lived on shifting sands where our worlds can crumble in a moment. Can we be at peace with that? Can we find grace within that? Then I think, although our outer lives are very much written by, a story written by the pandemic, I think we can learn ways where we don't compound suffering, um, where we learn not to add layers of, of argument to what is already difficult. One of the phrases that I have used really since the beginning of the pandemic, and, and some of you have heard me say this over and over again, it's a lesson I learned very early on in the midst of this, not when this is over, but in the midst of it, this, how do I thrive? How do I, I feel to be creative? How do I uh, sustain and resource spaciousness and kindness and easefulness. And when I was able to really ask those questions, then I, I really discovered that we all write our own story in the midst of the COVID story. In truth, throughout our lives, we have always been writing our own story. And to really reflect on what kind of story are we writing? Are we writing a story of despair, anxiety? Are we writing a story of, of joyfulness, of care, of compassion? Are we writing a story of fear and resignation? Or are we writing a story of appreciation and possibility? Then I think, how do, how do we, it, because if we're to thrive, our thriving is directly linked to the kind of story that we are writing moment to moment. At the heart of the Buddhist teaching was always the encouragement to aspire to and to realize our capacities for creativity, for thriving, for heartfulness, for wakefulness, for flourishing and to walk the path to that aspiration. When the Buddha, for, you know, the awareness of dukkha is the embarkation point of everyone in this path, isn't it? Dukkha has always been a, something that wakes us up, not always in ways that we want to. But the encounters with dukkhas have always been in our lives, something that shakes us out of complacency or taking things for granted or seeing superficially. 
You know, it might be in 2,500 years ago, the Buddha sp spoke about the sort of really almost kind of human but unhelpful responses to the reality of dukkha, of distress, of struggle, of pain, of illness, uh, of, of challenge. And he said, you know, one of, our, one of the very familiar lines of response is blame. You know, whose fault is it? You know, who did this? He said, another, another very familiar line of response to our encounters with dukkha is anger. You know, this shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening to me. He said another of the very familiar responses to dukkha is numbness, dissociation. Let's pretend that this isn't going on. Let's just check out. And he said another of the familiar but unhelpful responses to dukkha is simply to get very busy to get very busy, to try and fix things, to make, to try and make things go away. And I'm sure all of us are familiar with those responses at some time in our lives of having walked those pathways and somehow come to the, the understanding of the futility of those pathways and, and the ways that they actually compound difficulty and I, th I think when we can accept that, then, then actually we can also listen to the teaching and actually say, well, as the Buddha pointed out, is there another response to dukkha? And his basic invitation was that dukkha is to be understood. But I, I think it's a bigger invitation. The dukkha is to be responded to. Dukkha is something to be cared for. Over the time of this, uh, of these various lockdowns, and we were discussing this earlier, I think here we're into number three lockdown. I have, uh, what, what is I've found uh, really helpful and having the opportunity and the time to do so is, is remembering the value of many of the lists in the Buddhist teaching. And, and many of you, you know, most of you who are at all familiar with the Buddhist teaching know of these lists, or endless lists that seem to be compiled. And, and then we remember that in the time of the Buddha, that these lists were compiled as remembering devices, that because it was an oral tradition, that being able to, to know these lists, to, to be able to call them to mind, was a way of remembering but it's a way of remembering, not just the teaching, but it's a way of remembering actually what brings us together. It's a way of remembering what it is that we most deeply value in this life. So I have, I have, um, I find that these lists are powerful reminders of what is possible for us in difficult times. So over, over the last year, what I have done is actually I've, I've taken, you know, one list at a time, you know, and my, my favorite list, or actually I'll say this is where I've got to so far, um, you might say my, in my top 10, you know, I started with the Brahma Viharas, kindness, compassion, joyfulness, equanimity, in the midst of this, in the midst of this. I would wake up in the morning and bring the, that list to mind and bring it into my life as much as possible as an intentional way of being and living that day. 
that this day is going to be a day of kindness and friendliness and warmth and care. And I would stay with that intentionality really for quite a period of time. And I would take another of the qualities, joyfulness. Ah, in the midst of this, when things seem so bleak, what is it to cultivate that inclining of the heart towards joyfulness? And I realize, you know, we all know we can't make ourselves joyful. It, it's not something we can contrive. But if we keep that intention alive in our hearts, in our minds, I think sometimes we discover we can make room for joyfulness. What touches me today? What gladdens my heart today? What do I appreciate today? And there are so many things. And it's not just about, you know, it's not just about, you know, making myself happy. It's about what really is it that gladdens the mind. And there, there is much. Dur during the lockdowns, we, I, we have a postwoman in my neighborhood. And during the first lockdown, she would come every day to deliver the post in a different fancy dress outfit. And many of them were totally bizarre. Um, and really wild, and she's taken this practice up again. And and it is something just to to see her walk down the street dressed as Mary Poppins. And you think, ah, in the midst of this, there's that possibility of a gladdened heart, of a gladdened heart. To take a, an intentionality uh, uh, for a period of time, and the intentionality of, of compassion, of listening deeply to the cries of the world and responding in whatever way as possible. And perhaps one of these most important intentionalities of equanimity, of the willingness to be equally near all things, the lovely and the unlovely. So I stay, you know, that was, this was my, my sort of launch, my launch uh, list of, of endeavoring to remember and I really have to personally say that uh, the value of this, <clears throat> of, of finding a way of being in the midst of all of this, where my story is not being written entirely by uh, the conditions of the pandemic, but it's actually being written actually by the intentionality that I bring to every moment of living as much as I'm able and then I found myself moving on to the paramis. That uh, this was another, yeah, that, okay, this is a powerful teaching vehicle. You know, this is a powerful list. And it's always been a scene as a pathway of, of profound transformation and profound liberation. So I would begin, you know, with the first of the paramis, Dana, generosity. Uh, I, I have lived both lockdowns in a, in a, overflowing household of people um, where in what was previously my cave um, has become a metropolis. Um, so think about ah, Donna, generosity. What does that mean? How, how can I embrace the sort of, you know, the, the, the influx into, into my life with, with generosity rather than saying, oh, you know, oh, my space, my solitude, my silence. No, ah, there's room for this. What can be given? 
to to embrace the the parami of of integrity and renunciation and hasn't this this time this year really taught us so much about renunciation experience she hasn't it taught us so much about the painfulness of holding and clinging and the release that can come when that clinging and contractedness begins to open up and how 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 we how we engage in this moment to moment and and attune ourselves inwardly to all of those moments of beginning to contract to beginning to cling to know there is another option here and and to know certainly in buddhist psychology that you know that process of contractedness and clinging it, you know it's simply a magnification of aversion and craving the i don't want this and the i need this mind you know, and you think about the the possibility of stepping out of those those impulses that create so much pain you know if you consider you know if you if you hold you know a sharp pedal pebble in an open hand it's not painful at all but the moment that your hand closes around it into a fist then it's truly painful <clears throat> and how all of us often a moment to moment in a single day are asked to learn how to open the hand how to be able to hold the sharpness of life without contracting around it. Think about the parami of wisdom. What does that mean? You know, I, I soft, often distill this down to saying, well, you know, insight is, is when we put down our arguments with the unarguables. You know, and the unarguables are, you know, the, the reality of dukkha, the reality of change, the, the reality of non-self. When we put down our arguments with the unarguables, ah, then we know what it is really to understand and to live somehow aligned with what is actually happening in every moment, rather than living in dissonance that says, you know, life is happening over here and my mind is happening over here and saying, well, this shouldn't be happening. You know, life needs to be different than it is. I think about the, the parami of, of virya, of courage. You know, and I, I think for, for most of us, it, this does not mean, you know, huge dramatic acts of, of, of bravery. You know, I think courage in these times that we live in is our willingness to keep showing up for what is. To keep showing up in a caring way for those who need us to keep showing up, to contribute in whatever way we can to the well-being of others. And encourage or virya in the times we live in is about just resisting that temptation to, to close down or, or to inhabit landscapes of anxiety or fear. It's actually to draw deeply inwardly on our possibilities for being here fully. I think about the, the parami of patience. You know, and patience is not about endurance, but it's it's about not being aversive. It, it's about our, our, our willingness not to, again, not to be in that place of when this is over, of, ah, this is the life I'm living just now. 
Can I be patient with myself? Can I be patient with others? Can I be patient with all things? Think about the, 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 the parame of, of truthfulness, of truthfulness. I, mean, I often think of, of meditation practice as a way of being deeply truthful with ourselves, that of not pretending, of not feigning, of not exaggerating, of not underestimating. Yes, life can really be quite difficult. I think about the, the quality of, of kindness and the qualities of equanimity. How much we, has been asked of us in these times and how much actually we discover the resources that we have learned and the lessons that we have learned from our lives that allow us actually to continue to resource ourselves, that we actually can begin to thrive. And then I, I think about the, the last of the list, the one that I've been spending the last few months with, as really being the, the, the uh, seven limbs of awakening. And the Buddha, the Buddha uh, refers to these limbs of awakening as being the seven treasures that lie within us, treasures of the heart. He speaks of the limbs of awakening as being seeds of potentiality that live within each of us, that can be nurtured, that can be brought, cultivated, that can be brought to fruition. And I have deeply appreciated how helpful it is to genuinely cultivate these limbs or these, these treasures. Mindfulness rescuing ourselves from heedlessness and forgetfulness. Investigation, our willingness to probe beneath the surface of all things. Again, the quali quality of courage. It's interesting to me how often this quality appears and reappears in the Buddha's list. Joyfulness, again, a capacity for a gladdened heart. Tranquility, serenity. Isn't it so easy to be caught in waves of agitation, waves of, of busyness? Collectedness, samadhi. Again, we can easily become so, so dis disjointed, so disunified. The quality, again, of equanimity. There's so many crossovers in the Buddha's list of qualities. So not actually means that they're, they're different, but stresses their importance. The place where you mostly see the, the limbs of awakening spoken about is when they're, they're actually kind of presented side by side with the hindrance patterns of craving and aversion, of, 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 of dullness, of agitation and doubt. And I think Buddha, the Buddha really was very realistic in, in acknowledging almost the, the tension of waking up, the tension involved in learning how to thrive and to be free, how we have very powerful aspirations and longings for, for flourishing, for, for liberation, for wakefulness, for kindness, compassion, 
And yet we see that we live also with very familiar, often lifelong patterns that seem to, to almost sabotage our deepest intentions. And those, those lifelong patterns are the, the, you know, in that field of, of craving and aversion, agitation, dullness and doubt. And the Buddha described this tension as not a negative tension, but as a creative tension. This is our classroom. And many of you have probably have noticed, and so many people have told me that, you know, during the challenges of these times, that it seems to have opened the door in many moments for those habitual patterns of craving and aversion, agitation, dissociation, and doubt to, to enter. And these are, these are our classroom. These are our classroom. This is waking up. There is a tension in waking up. But our classroom is really in the midst, not only of life, but in the midst of some of these patterns that, that lead us into familiar territory of, of struggle and despair. And to know that we have choices. To know that we actually have choices. There's that wonderful quote by actually an Italian educator. It says that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. And in our power to choose lies our growth and our freedom. And so much of what we, we do in this pathway, in this practice, is that we learn to treasure that space between stimulus and response. We learn to, to cultivate the, the pause moments where we can listen inwardly, where we can listen outwardly, where we can listen to the, the quieter whispers of our hearts and minds. And to know that in that space lies our power to choose. What pathway we're going to walk in any moment. Is it a pathway that leads to flourishing? Is it a pathway that, that leads to a greater sense of freedom? Is it a pathway that leads to a greater sense of despair and imprisonment? But to know that we have with mindfulness, with enough awareness in place, we do have the power to choose which pathway we're going to follow. I think that this is such, such an important recollection because, you know, sometimes things happen so quickly within us, don't they? And sometimes we find ourselves in places of reactivity and far from where we wish to be so quickly. And, you know, in my experience of in years of practice, this, this is about, you know, learning to, to listen inwardly and learning to slow down those inner processes enough with kindness, with collectedness, with care, that that choice of what pathway we follow really does feel available to us. I think we, we live in a time where it's not just us as practitioners that really thrive 
to the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas or the Paramis or the, the treasures, the limbs of awakening. I think this is the whole world benefits from this. You know, the whole world benefits from this. There, there is, at the moment, there is so much, so much heartache, you know, so many struggles within in so many people that I, I think as, as, as practitioners, these are times when we, we step up in whatever way we can. What can we offer in terms of kindness and care and generosity? What can we offer to others? Do we know how to offer these, these gifts and these treasures to ourselves? And then every, every moment that we feel that those choices are really available to us, we have a little bit of a taste of the freedom that the Buddha speaks about. The freedom of heart, the, the freedom of mind, the, the freedom, the freedom to, to give and to care. Okay, so I think I'd like to just kind of end in that moment. Maybe we could just take a moment quietly together.